Well, I hope you are uh, you're ready for Thanksgiving. Pray it's a good week for you, whatever this week has in store. And um, certainly I know a number of folks that will be traveling or maybe you've got family coming. And so pray a, pray a blessing on you in this week. I, uh, I want to begin with this. In a moment, we're going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. So if you, if you want to follow in your Bibles, go ahead and get a head start and get there. Otherwise, as always, it'll be on the, the screens in front of you. But I want to give a shout out. I want to give praise to our thrift store annex, which is, um, and, and shout out to the volunteers there. And there's a lot of reasons to praise our volunteers, but, but specifically, I want to praise them for this. Uh, they, the leadership of the annex, they're, they're doing it right. They're doing it right. And this is what I mean. They're waiting to do their annual Christmas sale until after we've actually celebrated Thanksgiving. Yes. Because I will, I will confess to you, I, I don't consider myself a, a linear thinker, a, a kind of a systematic processor. I, I think in abstract, my, my mind goes all over the place. So, so there's very little um, consistency. There's very, often my thoughts don't have a very clear path, I guess would be what it is. Ask Tony, she can tell you. But there are some areas that I do find myself kind of linear and, and systematic. And, and, and it is in this, I would prefer we celebrate one holiday at a time, okay? So, so it, it kind of bugs me just a little bit when we're already breaking out all the Christmas stuff until we've gotten through Thanksgiving. Now, I know some of you are like, well, I, don't, I, like, thanks, or I like Christmas and I want to decorate early for Christmas. And I love Christmas too. And so maybe you're an early decorator. And if you are, that's okay. You're wrong, but that's okay. Um, whoo, some of you are going to be steaming now. Um, no, I, I, with family that was, I saw on Facebook, they were at like Disney this weekend. Disney's got all their Christmas stuff out. Uh, some of the radio stations have already started their 24 hours of Christmas music. Oh my gosh. Stop it. Just stop it. Let's do Thanksgiving first. And, and of course, it's not just sales and it's not, and it's not just marketing. Uh, television has done it too. They show, you know the worst offender that I found? The Hallmark Channel. The Hallmark Channel. Now, I don't watch the Hallmark Channel, okay? Just so you know. But, but I saw an advertisement that they had Countdown to Christmas. And so if you're a Hallmark Channel watcher, and I know a lot of you are, for 24 hours, seven days a week right now, they're all Christmas movies. Um, and, and I went and looked at their lineup. I don't know a single movie that they have on their lineup. But what I do know is I did learn this. If you ever find yourself wondering whatever happened to that actor or actress, go look at the Hallmark Channel because they're all there. <laughs> 24 hours. You know when they started? Do you know when they started their countdown to Christmas? Yeah, it's a July. It wasn't that early, but... It, October 27th, we didn't even get through Halloween before they had their countdown to Christmas. So they're, they're the, the worst offender, but they're not the only one. And when I say offender, that's my sense of offense. It may not be yours. But the other channels have all kicked in now. And last night on one of the ABC secondary channels, they had Christmas movies on. And PBS, last night if you fl flip to PBS at 5.30 or 6.30, you would have got the 1966 classic, 
the Grinch who stole Christmas. Now, I'm not sure what that says, that they start with the Grinch who stole Christmas. But I will admit, of all the movies, that one I know. That one I follow. That one I know. A classic. You, if you, you, most of you probably know the story. But just in case, the Grinch who tries to steal the Christmas tree and can't do it. Steals it from, tries to steal it from the people of Whoville. And basically, it's a transformation story. You know, he tries to steal their joy. And in the process, he finds joy. And, and so, but, but the idea of that theme, that, that, that what is it that steals Christmas joy? Well, I, I transfer that over because, again, going back to my linear thinking, I'm not going to start focusing on Christmas before Thanksgiving. But if you take that, that idea of the Grinch who stole Christmas and you transfer that over, you frame the question that I started asking that, that really undergirds the sermon this morning, which is not who, not who, who is the Grinch that steals Christmas, what, but what are the thieves of Thanksgiving? What are the things that, that begin to steal our Thanksgiving joy, that begin to steal our gratitude, begin to rob us of the ability to, to be appreciative and thankful for the things that we have received? And that is the question that turns us to the Scripture reading this morning. 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 10 and 15 through 22. This is a story that the central characters in the story are King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, specifically the history of Israel and, and as told in, in Chronicles and Kings, you know that Ahab and Jezebel are not good people. These are kind of some of the bad guys and the bad girls of, in, in, a, in a very literal sense of Scripture. And you'll see why, one example of why, in this story. But in it, we also get a glimpse of the characteristics and the attitudes that begin to steal our gratitude and steal Thanksgiving from us. So, beginning at verse 1, again, 1 Kings chapter 21. It says, Sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. That is a temper tantrum, brothers and sisters. His wife, Jezebel, came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king of Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. 
Then take him out and stone him to death. Now, picking up at verse 15. Now, what you need to know in verses 10 through 14 or 11 through 14, what she ordered is exactly what happens. Verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, you, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, in your word, in this story, help us to hear your voice, your challenge, your invitation, and our opportunity. Lord, speak your truth in these moments. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen and amen. I read this story, and, and maybe you kind of picked up in the inflection a little bit in, in the reading. It is, it is part comedy. I mean, it's, it's almost comical, part of it, the, the way Ahab reacts and, and, and this little temper tantrum he has about not getting his way. And it goes from somewhat humorous to incredibly tragic. And I begin to, to, to read this story, and, and I, I want to look for the, for the reasons why and what happens to Ahab, Jezebel, that, that kicks into motion the events of this very, very sad and destructive story. And the beginning, I think the heart of it is Ahab's inability or unwillingness to focus on his blessings, to see his fortune. And when I say fortune, I mean his good fortune as king of Samaria. And, and it speaks to the first of the two thieves of Thanksgiving I want to lift up. And that is envy. Envy is the first thief of thanksgiving. Now, envy is simply, very, the most simple definition is a discontent, dissatisfaction with what you have because you become focused or desiring what somebody else has. It is a dissatisfaction with what you have, what you've been given, what your, your blessings may be, because you've become transfixed, focused, obsessed with what somebody else has. And the reality is we probably have all had this experience. You can imagine it whatever way you want to, but it's, it's, it's as simple as recognizing, and this is what happens. 
you have something. The Bible here represents any, any number of things that are valuable, important, that you treasure. A gift, uh, an accomplishment, a recognition, maybe something of material value. And you have it, and you're satisfied with it, and you appreciate it. But what happens is you begin to look around. And I look at this, and this is a, a beautiful Bible that was given to me, and, and John and May Rombo gave it to me, and, and I treasure it, and, and I'm very thankful for it. But, 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 but envy starts to creep in when this happens. Rather than looking at that what I have, I start to, I start to look around. And I go, oh, oh, wow, wait a minute, oh, that's a nice Bible you have. Ooh, that's, that's a beautiful leather-bound Bible. Oh, look, there's, there's, gold, there's gold inscription on your Bible. And oh, yours is a little bigger, or, or you, yours is newer, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, what happens is my blessing, this, this thing that I value, that is important to me, all of a sudden doesn't seem as, as valuable, doesn't seem as, as sufficient, because I'm too busy looking at what you have. And at looking at what you have, I begin to discount what I have. That's the heart of envy. That's envy begins to creep in, and it happens to us in significant ways. It happens to us in subtle ways, but I think we've all had it happen. Now, it's, it's, it, we, we usually associate it materialistically, at least I do. You know, you think about the person who has the nicer house. You, know, you go in somebody's house, somebody invites you over for dinner, and you walk in, and you're like, oh, wow, look at their appliances, or look at their, their, their floor, or look at their, you know, fixtures, whatever it is. All of a sudden, you start to go, man, I wish I had that, okay? Or, I'll tell you what, I had to fight it yesterday. I had to fight envy yesterday because Tony and I went, and Cassidy, we went to the new car show in Tampa. Anybody go to the new car show in Tampa? We started going a few years ago. Ryan loves to go and see the cars, so he got us to go to the, you know, to take him to the new car show. And we kind of go every year just for fun. And we're not looking for a car. Cassie thinks we're looking for a car. But, um, but we just decided to go. But, but I'll tell you if, you, if you ever go, and it is fun and it's neat to see, but, but it's subtle what they do. See, this is, for me, this is, this is the trap they lay for you because it's at the Tampa Bay Convention Center. So it's on two floors. On the second floor, not where you start, but where you end up, those are like, that's, those are the cars that are in my wheelhouse. Those are Hondas, Toyotas, Nissans, Hyundais. Um, you know, those are those kind of cars that, that we usually buy. But where you start when you come in on the first floor, first thing you come, I mean, the first car you see, Porsche, Mercedes, BMWs. They've got the luxury cars down there. Now, these are the cars I don't imagine we will ever own. But this is what happens. They're there. You paid for the ticket. Let's check out the car. So you sit in the cars. And it's interesting to me. You go upstairs, and you know, everything's a key fob now. So you can kind of hit the button, and, but nothing happens. They're not, they're not hooked up. They don't want anybody to wreck anything, of course. But downstairs, I don't know what it is, but the key fobs all work. They don't start the engine, but they turn on the dash. So you can see the, 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 the displays and all the bells and all the whistles and the Bose sound systems and the, the plush seats. and I mean, just everything that, that, you know, like I said, for a lot of us, not all of you, but some of us, you know, we, we can't afford. Now, is there anything wrong with going to the car show? No, it's fun. We enjoy it. Well, here's the danger. Here's the danger. That car that we drove to the car show in, 
that I was perfectly happy with on the way to the car show, all of a sudden on the trip home doesn't seem as nice. Wow, you know what? I sure wish my car did this. I wish it did that. That's the creeping power of envy. You know, I've got a nice car. I'm very blessed. It's, it, and it's got a few bells and whistles. It's not just a rudimentary. It's got some nice stuff in it. But all of a sudden, when I compared it to these other cars, oh, now it's not quite enough. That's the danger of envy. That's the danger of envy. And it creeps in materialistically. It creeps in relationally. Oh, my gosh, you know, I've got some great friends. I sure do treasure these people. But, oh, man, I wish I had friends like he has or she has. I wish my friends were quite as cool as them. Or, or in our marriage, oh, yeah, we've got a good marriage, but boy, do I wish I had a marriage like they've got. You know, it, again, it's subtle, but it, it, it seeps in. It happens in our accomplishments. You've done well in your career. And you're proud of what you've accomplished, but all of a sudden you see that, that woman who's done just a little bit better or who's achieved a little bit more. Maybe, you know, when you were in high school or for some of our high school students, you know, they've, they're in the top ten, but all of a sudden they see somebody who's in the top five. And envy begins to creep in. And that begins to rob us of gratitude. That begins to, that becomes a thief of thanksgiving because it's hard to be thankful about what you have when you are so busy looking at what everybody else has. We do that in so many ways. You know, Paul talks in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the diversity of the body of Christ. And he talks about the many gifts that we have, that, that some are teachers and some are leaders and some are preachers and some are prophets and some are gifts of compassion and care. All these gifts. And the point is, what Paul wants to say is they're all important. Everybody in here has a diversity of gifts. All of us are wired different. And there's not one of us in here that is more important than the other. Not one of us that's more important than the other. But what happens is this happens in spiritual gifts. If you've ever done a spiritual gifts inventory, you might have fallen prey to this. You look at what your gifts are, and you start looking at what John's gifts are. And you go, oh, I like his gifts better. I like what he does. And, and I've seen this. I've, I've told the story before about a, a young woman who's in a church that I served years ago. And we did a spiritual gifts inventory. And she came up to me dejected because her gift was hospitality. Now, her name was Kelly, and Kelly was a warm, um, welcoming, comforting presence, the kind of person that made you feel that she was glad to see you, a big smile on her face. She had one of those effervescent personalities. But she came dejected because she had this gift of hospitality, and she said, this is my gift. What can I do with that? Because she was looking around the room, and she was looking at what everyone else gets on. She didn't feel she measured up. And I about fell out of my chair because I'm like, let me tell you what we can do with that. That is a great gift. We need hospi hospitable people. We need warm, pleasant, welcoming people. They're the most important people in, in, in contact ministries. They're what we call directors of first impressions. You know, they're the people. I, I tell our, our, our greeters and, and folks all the time, you may be the first contact somebody has with the church. That's an important impression. Some of you in the parking lot may be the first contact. That's an important impression. Take that seriously, please. Um, but it's important. But what happens is when we begin to look around and compare, we sometimes devalue ours and steals us of gratitude. That's the heart of what happens to Ahab. That's the heart of what happens. He's the king of Samaria. He has more than enough. 
but he sees this vineyard of Naboth, and it just happens to be closer to his palace than his multitude of vineyards, and he wants it. Okay, okay, he wants it. So he offers to either buy it or he says something very significant. Verse 2, he says to Naboth, if you want, I will give you a better vineyard. I will trade you something better. Now, I want you to hear that. He's got better vineyards than the one that he wants. But he's so focused on what he doesn't have that he fails to see the significance and the blessing of what he does. And so he tries to make the trade. Naboth says, no, this is ancestral land. I'm forbidden from giving this away. And that should have been the end of the story. But it's not because he's so transfixed on what he wants. Instead of celebrating what he has, he goes to his room and he pouts. And he goes to his room and he refuses. I mean, he's a 10-year-old. He refuses to eat and he holds himself up. The king of Samaria. Because he cannot see what he has because he's too focused on what he wants. That's the danger of envy. And it happens in so many ways. Have you been guilty of becoming so transfixed on what you want that you fail to see what you have? When that happens, when that creeps into our lives, we lose the ability. We give away the ability to be thankful. We give away a heart of gratitude. Because it's hard to be thankful for what you have when you're transfixed on what you want. And that's what happened to Ahab. Now, if that's where the story had ended, it would have been comical. We'd have chuckled at this silly, immature king. But sadly, that's not where the story ends because the second thief enters the picture. And it's represented by Jezebel, but this is equally on both of them. When you couple envy, see, envy is a personal um, struggle. Envy robs us internally of, of gratitude. And so it has a, a very personal implication and a, and a personal impact. But when the second thief enters, it begins to have an external impact and leave a path of destruction. And when you take the thief of envy and you couple it with a thief of narcissism, you have a destructive and dangerous combination. And Jezebel comes in and she represents an attitude of narcissism. Now, that's a strong word, but narcissism at its core is just an exceptionally heightened sense of selfishness. It is an extreme sense of selfishness. It is an idea that couples not only wanting what someone has, but then narcissism says, not only do you want it, but you deserve it. You deserve what they have, even if it comes at their expense. So now it begins to have an external implication. It begins to impact other people. And you know this because every one of us have known somebody who is narcissistic. Now here's the, the challenge. Probably, if I asked you if you are narcissistic, you would not raise a hand. If I said, okay, everybody who's a narcissist, put it up. Probably you're not going to raise a hand. We all know one, but none of us is one. Think about it. You've heard the old adage, you know, one in three is something. So look to your left and look to your right. If it's not him and it's not her, guess what? Now, the truth is you're probably not. A, in fact, I don't I can't identify. I wouldn't, but I can't identify anybody here who is a narcissist all the time. Right. Because it's not a perpetual state. 
But let's be honest, just with yourself and God, you don't have to confess anything to me. But there are not times when extreme selfishness begins to creep in. When we want something so much, we don't care what our getting it does to the person who loses it. And that's what happens in this story. Ahab's envy coupled with Jezebel's narcissism because she comes in and says, you know, not only do you deserve it, I will get it for you. And this story goes from comical to tragic because it costs Naboth his life, but it also costs Ahab and Jezebel theirs because they face the judgment of God for murder. I mean, that's what, they murder a man to get a field they don't even really need simply because they want it and they believe they deserve it. When you couple these two realities, you have spiritually destructive behaviors. Spiritually destructive behaviors. And so the first challenge for us is to begin to do a self-evaluation. Where have we allowed envy and, dare I say, at times, narcissism? I want it and I deserve it to begin to steal us of our gratitude, to become a thief, a thieves of thanksgiving. And when we do that, we need to find the antidote for those behaviors. We need to find the, the, the call that allows us to, to flee from those characteristics and embrace another. And to do that, we look no further than the example of Christ. Now, I know that that's what you'd expect a preacher to say, but I say it because it's absolutely true. You want to know how to combat a spirit of envy and a spirit of narcissism. You take on the character of the life of Christ. And the character of the life of Christ was service. Service. Jesus says in Mark 10, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The character of Jesus' life is he was never about what he could get. He was always focused on what he could give. And so he invites and he offers and he blesses and he heals, but he always sees needs and he sees the way to meet those needs. He goes into a town and sees a tax collector in a tree and he meets a need. He calls him to repentance, but to a new way of life. He goes into Jerusalem and instead of going to the, to the temple to pray, he goes to the pool where the lame and the inflicted afflicted gather so that he can heal. One of my favorite scenes is a very, in the movie Jesus of Nazareth. It's a very subtle scene. It's easy to miss. But in, in the scene as, as Jesus is teaching on the mountainside and he's walking among the crowds and he's teaching about God's kingdom and God's love, a merchant, a, a, a farmer of some sort, gives him an apple. And, and in the scene, Jesus takes a bite. And as he takes a bite, he looks and he sees a beggar down on the ground. And after he takes that one bite, he turns and he hands the apple to the beggar. And again, it seems like a fairly simple and, and insignificant scene, but it wasn't. Because in that moment, you get a, a crystal vision, a crystal clear picture of what the life of Jesus was about. Always about what he could give. Always seeing the need. Always meeting people in their place of struggle and hurt. Why does that combat envy and narcissism? Because it's hard to be self-centered when you are seeing the opportunities you have to serve and love others. It is hard to be, it, it, it is hard to be transfixed on what you want when you're focused on what other people need. 
and it begins to nurture in us different characteristics as opposed to envy and narcissism. We nurture two other characteristics that are important to combat that selfishness. The first is this. It nurtures contentment. It nurtures contentment. When you meet the needs of others, it is amazing how content you will be with what God has given to you. I learned this powerfully about 11 years ago, I think now, 11, 12 years ago, many of you remember when Hurricane Charlie cut a path across the state. And uh, I had an opportunity in the aftermath of that to go on a, on a work crew down to Arcadia. And we were cutting trees off of houses. We took our chainsaws and we were moving uh, trees and we were tarping leaves. And went down there into some areas that are, are low-income areas. I mean, people that were living, you know, basically in single-room houses um, with very little of the amenities that we treasure and value. But they were wonderful people. They were grateful people. They were thankful for everything they had. They lived content, and they were so appreciative of what we offered. But I remember that prior to that trip, I could have walked around the house that Tony Ann lived in, which was a nice house, but I could have easily pointed out all the things I wished were different. I wish this room was a little bigger. I wish this bathroom had, you know, this thing or the kitchen had this appliance. I could have pointed you out all the things that I wish that house had. I will never forget walking in that house after a week away serving and caring and, and tarping leaves. I thought I lived in a mansion. All of a sudden, that home seemed so much bigger and so much more um, luxurious, if you will, than it had before I left. Because all of a sudden, in serving others, my perspective had changed. And all of a sudden, rather seeing the things that I wished I had, all of a sudden I went, wow, look at all that I've got. And I felt that spirit of contentment that had been nurtured through service, through serving others. And I have to constantly be reminded of that because I fall into that trap all the time. So, service nurtures contentment. Second thing service does is it nurtures thanksgiving. It nurtures thanksgiving because we become appreciative of the things that God has given. We become aware of the blessings that we have. Because, again, we're outwardly focused rather than inwardly obsessed. And it nurtures that spirit of Christ in us. So that we can be thankful for what God has given and we can be open to the way God uses it. That becomes the antidote to envy and narcissism. As we approach Thanksgiving, as we approach this wonderful holiday and all the fun that goes with it, are you really thankful? Are you focused on what you have? Are you appreciative of what you've been given? Do you see your blessings? Or do you become like me? Do we become, heaven forbid, like Ahab? Where in spite of all that we have, our focus is on what we want. Our focus is on what we desire. Our focus is on what we don't possess. If that's where you slip spiritually, if that's your challenge, then look to Christ. Nurture a sense of service, outreach, caring, and in doing so, nurture contentment and thanksgiving for all God has given you. Don't let envy and don't let narcissism steal your gratitude. Amen? Friends, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, we are blessed by your Holy Spirit. We're blessed to know that we are loved and we are called children of God. And we are fortunate in all the good things around us and 
and we take time like this week to, to celebrate that. Lord, help us to be genuine. But part of our celebration, help it to be service, seeing the way we can meet the needs of others, loving others, and in doing so, nurturing those spirits of contentment and gratitude. That's the way of Christ. Help us to follow, we pray, in the way of Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.